Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again, and welcome to the podcast, My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would choose to place in a time capsule. Four things they love, and one thing they would like to forget. My guest in this episode is the television presenter and actress Sarah Green, who was the co-presenter of Blue Peter when she was just 22, Saturday Superstore with DJ Mike Reed, and Going Live with Philip Schofield, winning the Best Female on TV Award at the SOS Awards three years running. During this time, Sarah and her future husband, the TV and radio presenter Mike Smith, were seriously injured in a helicopter accident. Amazingly, they continued working with their company, Flying TV Limited, a helicopter video company, which Sarah has remained a director of since Mike's untimely death in 2014. Sarah has appeared in and presented Collector's Lot for Channel 4, Hospital Watch, Pebble Mill, Ghost Watch and This Morning, often with Philip Schofield. She performed on Dancing on Ice and has acted in Casualty, Brookside, French and Saunders and even Doctor Who. Quite a career. But let's find out the things that Sarah would take from that career and a very full life and preserve in a time capsule. I hope you enjoy it. It's lovely to see you. How have you been? I've been fine, actually. I mean, it's been a funny old um, last decade. (laughs) Mm. Um, But we kept going work-wise with Flying TV, Mike's business that I took on seven years ago. Mm. And things are continuing to move in the right direction there. But the rest of life is, is really, yes, it's fine. It's good. Good. You were married for a long time, weren't you? 
Well, we got married eight years. I, I <laughs> <laughs> Mike asked me to marry him. Um, we'd been going out for about it three weeks or three months. It was very soon. And I just, no, <laughs> no, it's much too early, much too young for that kind of thing. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, my mum, probably unlike a lot of parents, um, I'd sort of been conditioned as a little girl, listen, live with who you like, but don't get married. <laughs> my parents' marriage lasted forever and ever and ever. But she just always felt that there was no need really in, now to get married. Anyway, so that I'd sort of gone with the conditioning and it was fine. And then eight years later, we did get married mm. and we were together for over 30 years, which is remarkable because it felt like five minutes. I know. I've just reached 40 with my wife. Congratulations. Thank you. And, you know, the only thing that marked it, because it was right in the middle of lockdown and we couldn't do anything, we couldn't throw a party, but we had our first vaccination on Valentine's Day. Brilliant. <laughs> and our second one was our 40th wedding anniversary. Oh, no! <laughs> and had you done that on purpose? No, it's just the way it came up. You could celebrate with a couple of bricks. <laughs> <laughs> get vaccinated on a special day just for you oh no i think that's wonderful i really do and listen you were together and that's the most important thing yeah true so should we have a go should we look at some of the yes. of your 27 things that you want to put into the time capsule <laughs> <laughs> yeah you'll see the strategy i've taken here <laughs> okay i'm easily manipulated well it's an extraordinary thing to be asked to do this because it really makes you focus and think. And when then one is beset almost every night before going to sleep and you think, oh, no, my God, what about that? I can't get <laughs> that out. I want that in my time capsule, definitely. So I then turned it all around and I thought, well, what if <laughs> I had an epic time capsule <laughs> a very large capsule into which I could put things that have really meant a great deal to me and I want to have in there but they are large things that can sort of house other things <laughs> oh you cheater is it cheating if I tell you that I've got a building mm -hmm. a restaurant <laughs> And possibly, well, another building, possibly a theatre in my list. Would that be allowed? I accept almost anything. I'm really not at all severe when it comes to judging these things. Okay. I mean, some people have said, I want my life. I want every moment of it. Yes. All put yes. into one thing and I can go back and do it again, please. Well, what a wonderful thing to have a life where that's how you feel, mm. the all aspects of it. And... There's a little bit of that with mine, I suppose, but I haven't cheated quite so much. So if my capsule was the size of St. Paul's Cathedral, I think we could fit it all in there. Yes. Which in the scheme of the whole cosmos, it isn't that big, is it? No, it's tiny. And I've got a big team of diggers. <laughs> so would you, would you like me to dive in with my very first thing? I would. And before I go any further, how exciting to have somebody associated with Blue Peter and the very first time capsule that I can think of. That's right, of course. I think there have been a few time capsules on Blue Peter. I was never involved in burying one. But I certainly have watched the old footage, some of the archive footage, of, I think the first one that they buried. But there is something magical about putting something away for somebody else to find. Mm. 
And actually does come into one of my items to go into the time capsule. Okay, well, let's have a look at them. Let's start with number one. So number one is, and can I give you a little context first? Um, I was born in the middle of London. I grew up in London. And I lived for the first six years of my life in a little flat in a converted top floor of a house in northwest London, very near Primrose Hill Park. And back then, in the late 50s, early 60s, that area wasn't what it is today. (laughs) I mean, now you can't move for extremely expensive restaurants, art galleries, little artisanal bakeries. Then it was full of struggling actors, writers, it was a village where you had um, Doris was at the dairy and she babysat me a lot. Mr. Palmer was the greengrocer. Mr. Stowe was the butcher who I was terrified of because there was so much blood down the front of his apron. Mr. Alderson was the chemist. And mum and dad fell into the actor category. Right. They had met each other about four years before I was born when they were both working at Stratford East when my dad had helped set that up, theatre workshop. Mm-hmm. Um at the Theatre Royal in Stratford East. And my mum joined the company five years later and they met, fell in love. And um, there is a plaque on one of the dressing rooms there that said that Harry and Margie made history in this dressing room. That is Sarah Green. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So actually, even though I was born right in the middle of London, I was made in the East End. So (laughs) there we go. But they lived in a little flat over the fish and chip shop on Regent's Park Road. See, now I'm immediately picturing, this is how I always think of Primrose Hill, as those cartoons in the 101 Dalmatians. The dogs go walking on, on the hill, don't they? Yes, and I actually did read. I did Jack and Ori. I did the Jack and Ori for 101 Dalmatians, and I couldn't get through it without crying ever. Ah. Because that's the Primrose Hill that I actually remember. And so... When I came along, they moved to another little flat, which they, my dad converted beautifully. It was tiny and it was um, at the top of one of those big old houses. So it's where the servants would have lived. Mm. And we shared the loo. Um, we had to go down a flight of stairs and shared it with Mrs. Brown, who was actually Frau Brown. And she had been a refugee from the war and an Irish spinster who was quite scary um (laughs) she was quite severe and so we all shared the loo on the floor below but lived in this beautiful little flat on the top and um from my little bedroom if I had the window open I could hear the elephants making the elephanty noise from the zoo when the wind was blowing in the right direction and the lions roaring I mean it was it was an amazing place to grow up Mm. but both parents were working as much as they could. And as actors do, sometimes there was a lot of work and sometimes there wasn't. But the fortunate thing also was that my father was a very good artist. Um, he'd been a teenage draftsman during the war, but he'd gone on to art college and university after the war mm-hmm. in Wales. Um, and he was snapped up by Joan Littlewood when she realised that he could act also. And when they were on the tour of the mining villages, that's how that happened in a nutshell. So he, if, the, if he wasn't working either in the theatre or doing a bit in a film or a telly, and my mum was working more regularly in theatre, 
he would look after me. We would spend all our time together and he would be drawing and I'd be doing my thing. And we would go out to Swiss Cottage. We'd either go on the bus or we'd go on his little moped <laughs> or um, Austin van that he had. And we'd go to Swiss Cottage and we'd go to their favourite restaurant locally. And it was called The Cosmo. And The Cosmo was a sanctuary, an oasis. I didn't know this at the time, but it had been set up in 1937 as a place for refugees from a Europe that was becoming increasingly dangerous if you were Jewish. And there had already been a community of Viennese people in that area. Sigmund Freud lived just up the road. But it was originally set up, the Cosmo, in 37 by a Hungarian family. Mm -hmm. And it was taken over 20 years later, and it would be that incarnation that I would know by the Mannheims, who were refugees and had lost most of their family mm. in the war. And my father and I went into the Cosmo before I began school almost every day. Once I'd started school, certainly we all went every weekend. And one end of the Cosmo was the cafe, and the other end was the posher restaurant. So sometimes we'd go into the posher restaurant, but normally it was Dad and me in the cafe. Mm. And one of my favourite things was watching him sketch people. He'd just take the paper napkins uh, and, and he'd, he'd sketch or he'd get a bit of paper out of his pocket. And I'd either ask him to sketch someone or he'd say, right, I want you to see if you can spot who this is as I'm drawing it. <laughs> and we'd do that. We'd, we'd play this game. And of course, I had no idea about the history of most of the people who would be sitting in there because it, it wasn't just the... German and European Jewish contingent that was in there and the food was delicious and the languages that I was hearing all around me. It was also quite a groovy, hip, beatnik place. Mm. If there were younger folk in there, they'd all be wearing black polo necks <laughs> and they'd all come spawning in because they'd arrived from Central School of Speech and Drama, which was just around the corner. Yeah. And it was just fascinating to me. And it was probably where my love of people watching began. And watching dad then recreate these people on paper. But I'd obviously looked around at the people and I would have been about four years old. And I'd done something which absolutely horrified my father in all innocence. I'd taken one of his biros and I had written numbers on my arm. And he looked at my arm and he put his hand over it. He said, come with me right now. And we went into the loo and he just scrubbed it until it came off. Mm. He said, why did you do that? I said, because everybody else has got them on. Wow. And of course they were the tattooed numbers. Mm. So these were the survivors that were in there. And I said, what have I done? And I was in tears. I said, what have I done? What have I done? And he very gently and patiently tried to explain as best he could without going into too many details about why I shouldn't have done that. But that again was, it, it was a sort of landmark moment. Mm. Although painful at the time, it's important to me yeah. as, a, as a milestone really in my awareness of how the world could be, mm. how important it is that we make sure 
that those things never happen again. Yes. So the Cosmo has this real sense of coziness and safety, but also something else. Where you slightly grew up, I suppose. I did. Mm. I really did. And the lady who worked there, I always used to call her Clotilda because one of my favourite books as a child was called The Little Owl and there was a character in it called Clotilda and she lived on the top floor of an old house and she lived by herself on the top floor and the big house caught fire and it was the little owl who saved them all by warning them to get out quickly and Clotilda had that hair that ladies used to have where it was scraped up and then put into a bun which looked like one of those cottage loaves on top and that was Clotilda in the book. And that's what Clotilda the waitress looked like. <laughs> Enormous bosoms. And she was just really this woman who'd scoop me up and cuddle me. And then I'd have hot chocolate. And uh, yeah, the whole thing was 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 heaven mm. in a way. I've since discovered, you know, reading up, because sadly the Cosmo is no longer there. There is a plaque there. To, to mark that um, the Jewish heritage have put there. Thankfully, there is at least a plaque there. Mm. But there was such a community there that um, it became known as Finchleystrasse. <laughs> and the bus conductors used to shout out Finchleystrasse to the people getting on and off. And I sort of wish I'd known more about that when I was a little girl and just sort of been able to appreciate it more. I wonder if you can remember when you realised that your father was doing something extraordinary when he was drawing or whether you just took it for granted. I took it for granted probably until I went to university and I realised the enormity of what they had been involved with Mm -hmm. in the genesis of Theatre Workshop because other people told me, to me, All those characters that everybody else was talking and writing about, they were my honorary godparents, Joan and Jerry and and these people. That, to me, it was part of my extended family. And, of course, when you grow up with that as being the norm, you don't have that appreciation. But possibly going to, I mean, I I went to to university when I was 17, and that, that was slightly young and that's not because in any way I was clever it's because they didn't have room for me in the top class of the infants at Gospel Oak Primary School and I had to miss out a year and go on so it meant I always had a year in hand Mm. and I never had a gap year so I'm still waiting for that (laughs) so to have this brought to my attention at 17 was probably very lucky probably quite young to start Mm. to get an appreciation of it but I mean dad was he was just an extraordinary Jack of every trade, in that when, if times were a bit tough, on Regent's Park Road, if only I could take away some of the name boards above some of the shops, underneath would be his hand painting because he knew how to sign right. And then over the garage in Regent's Park Road was the offices of Primrose Hill Film Productions Limited. And that had been set up by an extraordinary man called Booty Hagen. That was his nickname. Louis Hagen, we only knew him as Booty, but Louis or Louis Hagen was a German Jewish family, uh, a bit older than my dad, but he had been one of the Arnhem glider pilots mm. with the RAF. He very quickly got himself attached to the RAF. But what his real passion was making films. 
And my dad had always loved making films and had done that while he was at art college and at university. And they'd set up this film production company and that was all going on too. So you'd got sign writing, film production, theatre, drawing. It was all going on. And then the creation of amazing stories because I always had a story before bedtime. And before I could read, they were all stories that were made up stories as well as fairy tales. And my dad's stories were, and my mum's, but she was often working. Mm -hmm. I'd have more time with her late morning before school. And sometimes she'd be very naughty and I'd stay off school (laughs) and we'd go walking right across Primrose Hill, Regent's Park, um, because these were my gardens, of Mm. course. These were my gardens. I took my grandchildren there for the first time a, a few weeks ago. And we went to the zoo. They ran around Regent's Park as if it was the greatest park in the world. Because it's huge, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And, of course, you know, when you're little and you, you grow up with that and it's literally across the road and you walk, we walked everywhere. You walked all across London from there. And you could. Mm. You think everybody has this. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, lucky you. Incredibly lucky. Yes. What a joyous thing that would be able to walk back into that restaurant with those people, with the knowledge that you have now. I know. And it's not that I want to spend all my time living in the past. I really don't. But to be able to dip in would be the most extraordinary thing. And so what one has to kind of do is to do it in your mind's eye, I think, Mm. and enjoy, enjoy all of that. But I mentioned that I treated Primrose Hill and Regent's Park as my gardens because I was always, um, I used to dig things up in Primrose (laughs) (laughs) I was convinced that I would find buried treasure somewhere. But in the meantime, because I like digging, I got very fascinated by stones and the possibility of finding fossils. So when I was six, nearly seven, we moved to a place called Gospel Oak, close to another park called Parliament Hill Fields. And again, these days, it's quite smart really and then it was full of old Londoners who lived in the little old cottages but we had a garden and so my passion for digging things up it knew no bounds the whole garden was being dug up (laughs) but what I started to do was start to regard these stones and make up stories about them and make up I'd label them and then I would charge people to come and look at them (laughs) and then my mum said Sarah, you know, you you love one of my favourite outings. I loved the Victorian Albert Museum. Absolutely loved it because I loved all the costumes. But I also mm. loved the Science Museum. And then she said, I know where we haven't been. I'm going to take you around the corner to the Geology Museum. <gasps> oh, this was an epiphany. <laughs> Suddenly, I was going into a building where there were rocks everywhere, but there were also sparkly rocks. <laughs> <laughs> And they were amazing colours. They were sapphires and rubies and diamonds and emeralds. And now I had even more to aim for because I was going to find these things. So the second building in my time capsule would be the Geology Museum. Right. Because then that became a passion going there. And the, the closest I could get to owning any of the shiny, sparkly, precious stones were postcards. And I still have my collection of postcards from the Geology Museum. And it just struck me as, as another wonder of the earth, of this planet. I loved it. And that's always stayed with me, right to the extent that many decades later, 
Mike and I were at a charity auction and one of the items you could bid for was to design a piece of jewellery with a fantastic chap called Theo Fennell, who has a jewellery workshop and very smart shop in London. Mm-hmm. And um, he had offered up the chance to design a piece of jewellery with him and Mike bid for this and then said, that's for you. <laughs> so I was just so thrilled. And I went back to my geology museum roots. In fact, I went to the geology museum and I looked at the precious and semi-precious stones there because what I decided I would design was this. And I'm holding up now so you can see, Mike. Oh, yeah. It's a version of what the Victorians would call a dearest ring. Mm. And the dearest ring was what a sweetheart gave to his beloved and it would have stones on it that stood for dearest. So the D would be a diamond, E would be an emerald, A would be an amethyst or aquamarine, and so on. Mm. And he'd hand that over. Well, I said to Thea Fennell, I would love to do a, a version of a dearest ring or a dearest necklace. And he said, oh, I love that idea, but you don't need to spell out dearest, do you? And I said, no, I'd quite like to spell out Mike and Sarah. So I went back to the Geology Museum and I found the right colours and colours that would go together. So it does look a bit like Sweeties. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favourite bit on the Antiques Roadshow is that little man that talks about the meaning of the jewels that are used in Victorian jewellery. And and it's thrilling when you find out, isn't it? Yes. That that to me is is really gorgeous. It's a gorgeous thing you've got there. Yes, I think it's it's lovely. And he, he put all sorts of symbolism on the inside. He said, can I suggest a, a motto on the inside? I said, yes, you can. I, and, and we said, why not? We came up with it together. Smith's made me because his wonderful craftsmen and craftswomen, mm. Smith's made the ring. But because Mike and I were Smith's, yes. also made the ring. So it says <laughs> Smith's made me inside. And then there's the, the the date of when we finally got married. It's on here. And then he said, well, what can we have as a symbol for Mike? Because Mike had set up this extraordinary company um, to be able to film from the air, mm. use helicopters that were affordable rather than these great big gas guzzly ones. And he sort of transformed all of that really for television. And that was his invention. His baby was flying TV. He said, well, why don't we have? And, and Mike had up in his office at the time, the Leonardo da Vinci helicopter, the spiral. Mm. And that's what we did. So that's something that is a real treasure. So I was going to say that would be in the time capsule. And then I got greedy, Mike, didn't I? And I said, can we have the whole of the geology museum. <laughs> You're going to have to donate that ring to the geology museum. One day. One day. So we've got the geology museum going into the time capsule as your second item. Yes. So what's number three? Okay, it's ad break time, but we'll be back with Sarah before you notice we've gone. See you in a sec. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Right, let's discover what else Sarah Green would like to put in her time capsule. Well, number three is Wembley Stadium. <laughs> Actually, it's yes, it's Penge. <laughs> uh, no, okay, this is probably slightly yes. This I'm going to scale that right down now mm-hmm. to something that again at the time I wouldn't have realised how important it was going to be to me, but it was the realisation of the wonder and the enjoyment of radio. And I was given a little transistor radio when I was about 11. And when I was told to put the light out because it was time to stop reading, I could go under the blankets Hmm. and listen to the radio. I listened to, in those days, Luxembourg 208. (laughs) And then there was the very beginnings of local radio in London. And my two favourite programmes were Paranormal Night. That was on Radio London. Mm. And it was absolutely hilarious because that was everybody ringing in about ghosts (laughs) and Anna Rayburn's problem page. And I think that started off on Radio London and then she went to Capital Radio. And I remember just being entranced by the fact people were ringing in and and talking about their problems, some of which were quite intimate. And as an 11 and 12-year-old, of course, that's totally fascinating. (laughs) Um, And then hearing about people's paranormal experiences. Um, Before you go any further, I'm going to just interrupt you for a moment to tell you that I spoke to Joe Pasquale the other day and I said that I was going to talk to you. And he said, oh, brilliant. He said, tell her, Ghost Watch is my favourite programme ever. (laughs) Uh, You see, that's one thing about talking to you. It's as though Joe Pasquale is here in the room. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm thrilled because a lot of people would regard it as their least favourite programme and that they, they felt totally hoaxed and fooled and terrified and the rest of it. Mm. I think as time goes by, more people grudgingly admit that, you know, it wasn't half bad. No. But thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I might have to find him on Twitter or something. Yeah, do. Um, do. He'd be delighted. So you this childhood experience of listening to radio, do you think that inspired you in the course you took? I honestly don't because I was so uh, 
absolutely single-mindedly going to be running the National Theatre by the time I was 30. Not that I was a megalomaniac or not <laughs> super confident. I just thought, well, why not? It's everything mm. that I want to do. Actually, as I say, at my early radio listening stage, I was intent on becoming an actress but the thought of becoming either a nurse or a nun appealed. And those were only because of the outfits. <laughs> Nothing to do with the work involved. It was all about playing a part. Do you regret at all that your life was diverted away from acting? I know you have done some really lovely parts, but not as many as you would have done if you'd just been an actress. Do you regret that Biddy Baxter saw you? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know because there are so many things that I've got to experience and people that I've met mm. because of what Biddy Baxter offered me. And I think I'm less regretful than regretful. Mm. But there are times when I see a spectacular drama and I just think, oh, God, that would be so wonderful to be doing that. Mm. But actually, because of growing up within an acting household, it probably was less glamorous and romantic in my mind than it would be for people who hadn't grown up within that world. Mm. When I was offered, because I had been doing drama, I'd, I'd done two quite big drama series just prior to being offered that job. And my mum was at that stage doing a play in the West End with Richard Bryars. Oh, lovely. I'd been in to see them so many times. And when they were on tour before then, I'd been filming this drama series at that stage. And so I'd dip in and out and I'd go, I'd go and see them. So I got to know Richard Bryars and Paul Eddington was in it as well. He was in the play as well. Um, got to know him quite well. And so they were very sweet and sort of took an interest in what I was up to. And when I was going to audition for it, my agent at the time said, listen, you'd be crazy to take this. I said, Michael, I'm never going to get it. I'm only doing it as a dare because everyone in, in the flat that I was sharing with about eight other people, none of them believed I would go and do the audition. And then if I did, could I nick them all badges? <laughs> How old were you? I was then 21. Wow. So, <laughs> so I went in and, of course, the crew all fell about laughing because I'd just been working for nearly a, a year with that particular crew doing a drama series, doing the drama series, which was the reason I appeared as a guest on Blue Peter in the first place, because it was one of the Sunday evening classic drama costumey things and, and the, the leading characters were, they were giving it a plug on Blue Peter. And that's why a couple of people on Blue Peter, mainly Biddy, had said, how do you fancy coming to audition for us? Mm. And so I was going back into the studio, trying to do this audition and get it right, with all the, the crew laughing their socks off because they couldn't believe this was the same person that they'd been larking about with and, <laughs> and, and, and we'd be going out, you know, to the pub where we'd been filming down in Deal in Kent. Mm. Um, and it was either side of a BBC strike, that series. So the whole thing had been extended beyond the bounds of normal filming times. It, they all giggled all the way through, which probably was a help in a way because it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. There was no part to play. And in those days, no auto cue. Yes. And who do you want me to be? <laughs> I sort of tried to act being Tina Heath, really, who was my predecessor. And um, 
I don't know, I, I, I muffled my way through it. And the next day, Biddy called me and said, darling, we're delighted to, to offer you the job. Wow. And I thought, oh God, Michael Ladkin, now my agent's going to be furious because he, he said, if I take this, I will never, ever be able to act again. That will be it. And I said, no, 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 it'll be fine. I'll do it for a couple of years and then I'll go back and pick up where I left off. And he said, well, you can try. And of course, he was right to an extent. Mm. But I also went in and I talked, obviously, with my parents. And when mum had said to Richard Bryars, oh, because he said, oh, how did you get on? How did you get on? And he said, well, she's been offered it. He said, marvellous, darling, marvellous. I said, but Richard, Michael, I said, he said, I shouldn't do it. He said, no, rubbish. He said, darling, you've just got to think of two words, regular work. <laughs> you've got a point. Yeah. And then that adventure began. There are lots of people who can act, I think but there are not many people who can present. It's a skill that not many people have. And from that, to go on and do, you know, the things you did and going live, what an extraordinary thing to do. You've had the most amazing career. Well, it's strange, isn't it? Because, you see, I see it as completely the other way around, that not many people can act, but quite a lot of people can make a good fist at presenting. But actually, in some respects, I've probably found presenting harder than a lot of people because of acting. I mean, Biddy always, if she could find actors to use as presenters, the reason she loved that was because we were very quick studies. We could learn that script very quickly. Mm. And it was a big script. And there would be changes right up until the last minute. And it was just the most nerve-wracking, hellish thing. (laughs) And then, of course, they got wise. And a few years later, thanks to lovely Yvette Fielding, autocue was brought in Mm. and Biddy's whole reason for not it wasn't to give us a hellish time it was because we'd be often too far away from any camera to be able to read autocue because there were these massive epic items in the studio and also that's another skill the skill of going from an autocue going turning and then talking to someone and then coming back to an autocue that's a new skill Yes, yes. And it's one that I had to learn much, much later because cause we never had autocue on going live either. But that was fine because we'd written the scripts as much as they were scripted. It was much more the timing in your ear and learning to listen to eight different conversations at the same time mm. and bullet points that you would then flesh out in an improvisational way almost with your guest mm. or with the crew around you and, and really work like sort of one big organism really within that little studio. Yes. And so that was the most fabulous experience doing that show. And had I not done Blue Peter, I think it would have been less enjoyable because I felt very at home in a live situation. But this was so much easier doing three and a quarter hours live in this semi-improvisational way, even though it was very structured and we knew how long each item was going to last. Mm. But within the bounds of that, working with a crew that we, again, knew very, very well and they knew us, there was a lot of osmosis involved, I think, with that. And I don't know anywhere else that one could have that experience and have Kiri Takanoa show up and agree go and play one of the games or or have <laughs> a politician sit down in front of a group of children who genuinely want to cross question them mm. and will get straight to the point. That was always my favorite part of going live. 
So I'm wrong then that, in fact, your love of radio as a child led you to that. That was a complete accident or, in fact, not what you intended at all. No, and yet, you see, the radio had come with me at every stage of the way, all the way through, because I, I hadn't. I mean, I watched telly, yeah, when I was at home with mum and dad, but it just wasn't part of the, the picture for me. You see, now... Everything is so much more homogenous and it's much better now. And I think people were much more territorial. Mm. But, but going back to the, the radio, the, the radio yes. so I started to really fall in love with Capital Radio as it was back then. Now, Capital Radio, it was the most extraordinary station that I don't know had ever quite existed. For a commercial radio station, it had drama. It had every type of music from David Rodgen and reggae music to, um, <laughs> do you remember Gerald Harper? Mm. He had a, a show on Sunday afternoons. My name is Gerald Harper. Mm. Welcome to my Sunday affair. <laughs> and so he would be doing that Sunday afternoon. Michael Aspel would be on weekday mornings. And then they had some quite groovy people playing, you know, really very sharp end contemporary music. It was Everything was on there. And I absolutely adored Capital Radio. Mm. So full forward, many years later, when I was not being able to sleep at night and listening to the radio under the covers still as a much more grown-up girl, and there was this chap doing the midnight shift, the graveyard shift, called Mike Smith. <laughs> and um, then he graduated to The Breakfast Show. And I absolutely adored his show. I had no idea what he looked like because, again, he didn't do telly. He was a radio person. And I absolutely loved that show. And then one day in that shared flat, once I was already working on Blue Peter, and I was racing off to go to a, a, a meeting in the office. And one of my, my flatmates, there were quite a few medics there, and they had funny shifts. So they were doing this strange thing of watching daytime television or whatever that was. <laughs> and there was a wonderful lady called Mavis Nicholson and I sometimes caught her show and I had to run off and leave it. But as I left the room, I heard her say, well, now I'm going to interview a young man who is going to be the first DJ ever to work on an outside broadcast radio bus. And it's Mike Smith. And I thought, oh, I know Mike Smith. I, he's, he doesn't show for me. He is only <laughs> broadcasting to me. Mm-hmm. I only know his voice. And I went in and took a double take and thought, oh, oh, okay. That's what he looks like. Right. Tuck that one away. And so off I went to work. And about three months after that, I was presenting the very first London marathon for Blue Peter because Peter Duncan, my brother on the show, Mm. he was running in the very first London marathon. And who should be there hosting it for Capital Radio? But Mike Smith and the Capital Radio outside broadcast bus. <laughs> and, um, would be rude to not say hello, wouldn't it? It would be rude not to say hello. But in the meantime, his engineer said, Mike, Mike, that girl you fancy on Blue Peter, she's over there. You need to go and say hello. And oh. so he edged towards me. And I think he's coming towards me. He's coming. What do I say? What? Do I, how do I tell him? How do I not look like a creep? How do I not like a how do I tell him that, that, that I really know exactly who he is, I listen, and I'm a really nice person. Mm. And all I could think of, because it was piddling down with rain, and it was early Sunday morning, I said, God, it's, 
unfair to get you up so early on a Sunday, isn't it? <laughs> and he came back with a much better line and, and said, I'd really like to interview you, like now, for the radio. You can do live. You can go on now, can't you? And he, he got the microphone and he just thrust under my nose and interviewed me. And I, okay, okay. So he's interviewed me. And then afterwards, I said, oh my goodness, that was so exciting that now I really have to go and find somewhere to go and have a pee. And he said, <laughs> actually, so do I. Why don't I accompany you up to the nearest loose up at Hyde Park Corner? So he walked all the way up. Constitution Hill. Yes, yeah, so not a very romantic meeting. No, although I am amazed that he didn't walk up to you and say, hello, I'm Mike Smith. Will you marry me? <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was in his head. Oh, bless him. And when he did, I, I kind of, I can't believe sometimes I really relive that moment and think, why didn't I just say yes straight away? Mm. But there we are. Well, thank goodness for radio. That's all I can say. Yes. You can certainly put it into the time capsule. I worked quite a lot of Capital at, at that time. I loved it. I thought it was a great place to work. We were supposed to be recording the day of the hurricane. So when was that, 87 or something? Yes. So uh, I woke up in Tunbridge Wells to devastation. And then I said to my wife, I've got to go into London and do a radio recording. So I drove, basically following a fire engine down the A21 as it cut its way through trees. And after about a four-hour journey, I got to send London and everything was shut. A trooper. <laughs> so when you got to Capital Radio to record, was it all up and running? No, no. I knocked on the door and a bloke came and said, yes. I said, I'm supposed to be recording. He said, there's no one here, mate. Well, you see, just down the road, so if you'd just gone a, a, a long Euston Road and then turned down Great Portland Street and gone down to BH, the only person in there who actually took on everybody's show that day was Mike. Ah, uh. He was doing the breakfast show then. He got in and they had to fire up a generator. Yeah. And he was broadcasting. <laughs> and I'm laughing because by that stage, I got up and I'd realised what was going on. And I thought, well, he's not going to be on. And he was. And the first, the first, first song that he played, and this is so typical of him, was... Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so difficult. <laughs> and then it all got a bit more serious. But the other broadcasters didn't show up. So he had to keep, he just rolled on into the next one. So you could have run down the road and done it all live. Oh, that would have been fun. I wish I'd known that. Yeah. Never mind. So radio goes into the time capsule. Yes. Okay, so we've got two more items. Okay, so. I was going to ask you for two buses, but I'll take one bus. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, first of all, for the 24 bus, because that was my bus route into school every day. But there is a much more important bus to me that I would like. Mm. When I was meant to be revising for my finals, instead, I bought a Greyhound bus ticket. And I went, and I'd never been to America before, I went from New York to Los Angeles wow. via San Francisco. I went with my boyfriend at the time, but we made a pact that we would not sit together on the bus ever hmm. because in that way we would meet different people. It was a good pact to make. And it's, I don't mean different people to sort of go off with them, but just to hear the stories because 
the people who use the bus, and I didn't realize any of this at the time, but the people who use the bus in America are generally either running away from an old chapter or running to start a new chapter, sometimes both. And they've all got a story. And so we, yeah, we went New York, Philadelphia, across to Nashville and Memphis, up towards Albuquerque, across to New Mexico, the Grand Canyon, all the way up then to San Francisco, then went down the coast to Los Angeles, and we flew back from Los Angeles to England. And the thing was that this was the dawn of the cheap, cheap flights across the Atlantic. So Freddie Laker mm-hmm. had the British version, but we got our tickets from the American version, which I think was called Jet Save. And the only significance to that is that I decided when I got on the flight that I should celebrate my first trip to the United States of America by ordering a dry martini. <laughs> so when the flight attendant came by, she said to me, oh, honey, um, can I get you some water? I said, no, I would like a dry martini, please. And she looked at me and honey, what age are you? And I said, I'm, I'm 19. And she said, honey, I can't serve you alcohol. I said, but I'm 19. And she said, no, you have to be 21. And I said, oh, oh. She said, how long are you spending in the USA? I said, well, three weeks. And what are you going to be doing? And I explained. And she just was incredulous. And she said, we need to talk. We need to talk. And she came back and she'd written down her number and given me a card And she said, my roommate and I, we share an apartment in Oakland, California, which is where you may go before San Francisco. If you make it, you have to come and see us. (laughs) And I thought it was very English. I said, oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you very, very much. Yes, of course. I thought, yeah, I'm never going to do that. And I'm never going to see her again. And that's not going to happen. And 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 she said, and don't be doing that English thing of saying to me that you're going to come and you're not because you will need a bed. You will need a shower because our plan was that we'd sleep on the bus at night and see the sights and visit during the day. Yes. That sort of worked. He had family in New York and in L.A. So there was a sort of safety net slightly there. But um, the big bit in the middle, <laughs> we were on our own. And I think we managed it with just two motel stops. Um, wow. But it was it was such a an education, such an experience. The people that I met, I kept a very, very detailed journal of those people. So I can remember them. And we really just lived on toast. Mm. But it, it was an extraordinary trip. And it started a lifelong love affair with me for the United States. Mm. And I've continued to discover it. And a lot of that is down to that lady who gave me her card, who was called Dottie Saishon. And I did, in fact, we did go and look her up and we got these ginormous backpacks and she met us at the Greyhound station in what we used to call a shooting break. And she said, come on, guys, throw your backpacks into the, oh yeah, she said trunk, which I didn't know what that meant. (laughs) Throw your backpacks into the trunk. We're going to an Art Garfunkel concert. Now, bear in mind, we're talking about this is late 70s. Oh, wow. And I'd been singing most of those songs, like we've all gone to look for America on oh, the way. Oh, my word. I was going to ask you if the man in the gabardine suit was a spy. He was a spy. Mm. You know, they were all there on that bus. Yeah. And she turned out to have this roommate in the apartment in Oakland 
but she said we were going to stay in another house that she owned. <laughs> she was <laughs> doing the flight attendant thing as an adventure oh, for a wow. someone who's actually an architect. <laughs> and she did give me that dry martini. Yeah. Yeah. So that bus took me all the way to Dottie. The man she was then married to was a lovely man called Hank Malloy, who also became a dear friend of mine and subsequently met Mike. Um, Dottie and Hank went their separate ways. I kept in touch with them both and then met Hank's subsequent wives. And it just, that all came about because we were able to get there on the bus. And the bus means a lot to me. Mm. It's always worth taking a risk, isn't it? It's always worth taking time as well, I think. The whole thing about a bus journey is that's a long time. You probably would have hated each other as well if you'd sat next to each other the whole way. Yes, we would. And we remain friends. I still know Jeremy and it's lovely. We didn't stay together, not because of that journey, but, you know, subsequently. Um, but it was, a, it was such an experience. And, of course, he has a whole other range of stories. Mm. Yeah. But good old Dottie. Well done. What a great woman. I know, truly a great woman. Thank goodness for her because she, yeah, she. it was a whole other chapter that opened up because of her. So the Greyhound bus represents all of that. Mm. And when I go to America now and I see the Greyhound bus powering down I-95 or wherever, my heart sort of lifts. <laughs> what an adventure. The very fact that Dottie said that to you, to me, suggests that she'd made that generous offer before and it had been, well, it had not been picked up. And so what a fabulous woman. Yes, I wonder. Yeah, I bet you're right. Mm. I bet you're right. Well, I took the risk. You did. I'm very jealous of that experience. So, I, I, you know, there we are. That goes into the time capsule for you. Yeah. So we've got the last one, sadly, is one thing you'd like to get rid of. So this is a problem for me. What to jettison? And I have noticed, and I know you won't mind me saying it, that, that, that I think that people generally find this one a bit of a problem. Yes. You either choose something very specific that you dislike or people tend towards, which is what I was doing, and I thought, gosh, I wonder if every... And it's not that I've listened just to copy other people. It isn't. But I wondered if they'd struggled with as much as me to think of something that I could... Because I could be very, very sort of superficial in a way and say, if I could get rid of every raw onion on the planet, I would. <laughs> That would go in there because I, I love cooking and I, I love using onions in cooking. I love it. But raw onion to me is nothing but pain because I am allergic to the acid. So it brings me out in hives. Mm. Yes. So that's a very superficial thing. But on a much more philosophical and slightly deeper and higher levels, really, mm. I would jettison quite happily. The time that is wasted worrying about the wrong things that we shouldn't be worrying about, or I, not we, I specifically, this is my problem here. And that I wish that I hadn't wasted so much of my time worrying about conforming to other people's ideas of what I should be. Mm. That would be something that I would wish that I could claw that time back yes maybe that might be possible i don't know no i think i think if we put in wasted time then in fact hopefully then that time is replaced by good time yes. by useful time and you're the very first person strangely to put time into 
the time capsule, to take any of the time that you've had and put it in. That honestly is what kept coming back to me Mm. all the time, (laughs) junking that and recycling it into time that could be used in a more joyful manner. Mm. So do you think that that worrying, do you think that makes you indecisive and then it always turns out to be pointless? Yes, there is certainly an element of that, of worrying about something and not doing it because I'm worrying about it. And then what I've got slightly better at is grabbing hold of it, doing it and realising it was a paper tiger, that, that, that it, it, it wasn't worth that worry. I thought, God, I kicked myself. Why did I just get on with it? Just mm. do it. Don't waste time worrying about it, having sleepless nights about something that's there festering in a corner that you don't want to face. Mm. Just try and face it. Now, it's very easy to say this, of course. It's much harder to do. It is very easy to say it. I just, I remember just recently my oldest grandson learning to dive into a swimming pool and he so wanted to do it. He just couldn't bring himself to the point of letting himself go. It was really painful to watch. And then, of course, eventually he became so frustrated with himself, he got upset by it and then just turned around, went to the side of the pool and dived in. And the grin on his face when he came out of the water was so joyous. And I know exactly what you mean with that. Why did I not just get on with it? Just do it. Oh, I'm so glad he did it. Mm. That is what I call really brave minor pathetic things that I put off I don't like form filling and I don't like paperwork and the thing is that Mike was very very good at it and he just didn't think it was a problem you know he just sort of get on with things and inevitably I then had quite a lot of that to deal with that's always one of the great problems in, in, in any relationship when somebody dies, I think, is that you tend to partition your life. Everybody does it. It just happens, doesn't it? Yeah, you're good at this, you do it. And I'll yes. do the things that I'm good at. And so then yes. suddenly you think, oh, I've got to fill in all these forms. And Mike always did that. Yes, yeah. and didn't even sort of think twice about it. And, um, and yeah, it, it, it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's, you see... I still think that, that, well, I sort of know, really, that Mike is pulling so many strings in my life. <laughs> Taking on his company, Flying TV, was a, it was absolutely, there was no doubt in my mind that that's what he would have wanted me to do. Mm. And although I was very much around in the setting up of the company, it was his baby. So taking it on as someone who is neither a camera operator nor an aviator was something really um, a bit crazy. But I just knew that he wouldn't let me down. And, and it, it was strange because there would be mornings I would wake up almost just like with a tap on the shoulder and saying, right, have you checked the 50-hour check on, on GPEX? Have you checked the, the, the thing? And, then, and it was it was very strange. But wonderful. Wonderful. And he has mostly undoubtedly been responsible for me meeting my beloved, who was one of his oldest friends, who waited a, a certain amount of time, but did keep leaving messages on the answering machine. And I thought he was just being kind. And then I almost got a message saying, for God's sake, Reno. Rob is trying to make contact with you because he actually wants to take you out, not because he's kind, but because he wants to take you out. So will you just get off your ass 
and go and answer the phone next time it rings. <laughs> and lo and behold, yes, a whole new conversation started. Brilliant. And I'm sure. Well, and Rob is very sure too, because it's a very strange situation to find yourself in. I remember being terribly worried and, and saying to this dear man who I'd known for all these years, saying, but they, isn't it strange coming in? to the house and seeing all these pictures everywhere of Mike. He said, no, no, it's not strange. It would be strange if they weren't there. And remember, I love him too. How lovely. Oh, Sarah, it's been so lovely to talk to you and uh, really great to see you again. And uh, it's never too late. So I'm, I'm going to leave you now, but I'm going to be ringing the National Theatre and <laughs> putting a word in. <laughs> well, darling, listen, I can't believe we've had this lovely chat and I know that we all love talking about ourselves but generally speaking I much prefer to be the interviewer but you've made this so easy for me so thank you my pleasure uh, there we are we both learned new skills you've learned that you can be the interviewee and I've actually learned that I can listen to people which is pretty amazing you don't have a problem with that at all <laughs> you have been listening to my time capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Sarah Green. Thank you for listening. If this is not one of your regular podcasts, I hope we've entertained you enough for you to want to subscribe to this podcast, which you can easily do on the podcast provider you're listening to this on. Just click subscribe, and we'll make sure you get all new episodes the moment they're released. And while you're in the clicking mode, why not click on five stars and rate us? Thanks. Oh, you might even want to write a review or comment. It's always appreciated. You can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Feel free to message us with any thoughts you might have about the podcast, particularly suggestions of future possible guests, especially if you have their phone number. You can download or stream the theme tune written by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was responsible for most of the good bits. His name is John Fenton Stevens. Now, if you want to keep listening, there may well be some more adverts before the next episode. They might even play our award-winning ad. Yeah? Well, I don't like to boast, but if you watched the advertising awards on telly the other night, we won in the category of Best Sponsorship Ad by Anyone Over 60. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't attend or watch it live. Well, it was way past my bedtime. But I have watched it since on catch-up. It didn't take long. Well, it was for adverts, so... I just fast-forwarded through the whole thing. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 